we're here. Oh, well. It's us. <laughs> this is Spiel, the reading event for people who don't usually like reading events. I'm Joanna Baxter. And I'm Dana Mahana. And we are your Spielin' Good Hosts. The two of us met in the Writer's Studio program at Simon Fraser University. The lasting takeaway from our experience is the importance of having a community of writers who understand the challenges and can celebrate in the victories of writing, both big and small. Joanna and I really wanted to extend that support to other emerging writers. Spiel is our way of cultivating that writing community in our own style. Your style? In our own style. (laughs) (laughs) We came up with Spiel, a live recording event where writers get up on stage and share their original work. Very scary, right? Our platform is wide and inclusive. We welcome all genres, poetry, prose, fiction, nonfiction, specfic, and sci-fi. The only strict rule is our five-minute format, after which the shepherd's hook will drag you off the stage. It's happened. It's ugly. Mm -hmm. Whatever the style of your writing, Spiel's goal is to empower and support. We hope you enjoy this episode's selection of readers. Yeah, we do. Sarah Donaher is a recent graduate of the Writer's Studio, who is working on her first book of poems that explores the themes of home, loss, and identity through detailing her family's escape from Iran after the Islamic Revolution and their immigration to Canada. Sarah is a longtime resident of the North Shore, one of the first Iranian families to call West Van home, back when the only rice available was Uncle Ben's, which sorely depressed her father. Thank you everyone for coming out here. Um, The following poems are from my manuscript, which is currently with an editor. (laughs) (laughs) Finally done writing it. So um, I chose three poems from that manuscript to read tonight because um, they tell a little story, like my book, as um, I, I think as maybe you mentioned in the intro, I wasn't really listening. (laughs) Um, My manuscript tells my family's immigration story in a series of independent poems that weave together the plot. So tonight we begin by going back in time with a poem called North Vancouver, 1982. Gray, damp backdrop to a cold, wet window pane where my eyes follow raindrops glide. Inside, with camel corduroy, navy wooden clogs, brown polyester vest, old furs lodged in back corners of small dark closets, camel corduroy, shiny pink plastic buttons, scattered upon dark green shag carpet. Oven-baked bread embrace on this cold, drizzly Vancouver day, not yet accustomed to the gray. So the following poem is a suite, and it's inspired by a 2019 article in the North Shore News that quoted liberal MLAs and MPs. 
And at the, <laughs> at the end of part one, you will hear lyrics to the song Lithium by Nirvana. Yeah. <laughs> Hashtag West Van. One. I close the door, turn on 90s alternative rock. Don't want to be needed right now. I sit on my bed and pick a pink metallic pencil from its box, slick between my fingers, point sharp, strong. It glides color onto the white crisp paper, soft scratches coloring between the lines, entering the sacred. I am 40, not 15, but I don't want to be needed right now. Music and motion of coloring take me backward to my parents' home, my forever family home, safe inside the resin bubble in my mind, a west coast post and beam filled with light, views of the ocean, my parents' dream home plot of land in Canada, back deck summer barbecues, the smell of safety under summer stars. Next door, a carpenter and his homemaker wife. Down the road, a teacher and principal. Annual block parties bringing us together. Hot afternoons inside, faint sauna smell of the wood paneling filled our home. And on cold winter nights, fire building games around the wood burning hearth of the home. My father always conceding defeat to my grandma. Basmati rice with saffron cooks on the stove. Grandma watches Wheel of, For of Fortune while sewing. Mom and dad cook and clean together in the kitchen. My brother plays basketball in the backyard. Today I found my friends. They're in my head. I don't want to be needed right now. Two. Our home gutted. Others on the street removed. Drywall, new paint and stain and plaster and brand new gaudy and stainless steel. And $400 per square foot renos, tree removal bylaws, built to the curb, heated garage and hashtag, good heavens, who will, who will sustain our economy? And hashtag, spec tax. <laughs> 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 this poem is titled You. <clears throat> Moments in time held inside glass bottles on shelves in my mind swirl near the bottom. Don't want to be released. They make me. Sometimes I wander up there, play each moment to find you the ones you were robbed of being, the aunt who never stopped singing, carefree mother, the father who was never scared, the grandmother who was never lonesome, the family who never endured racism, alienation. Thank you. <laughs> Diane Carruthers. Diane studied humanities at the University of Calgary. 
She's worked as an independent writer, director, and producer for many years in documentary film with the CBC and has won some awards. She writes screenplays, content, fiction, and nonfiction. Currently, she works as a story consultant in screenplay and fiction and is writing a novel. For seven years, a large Burke's blue rectangle box made of thin linen and cardboard, now showing signs of age, had been sitting at the back of Willow's closet. It had been tucked away since the first week she and Matt had moved into this house. It was only now that they were moving out that she had the occasion to pull the box out, but had no time to go through it. The movers were coming the next day, and they were far from ready. She didn't want to move. Her snail's pace and procrastination were her last stand and useless protest. She had lost the battle with her husband, and pu who pulled Trump, arguing that a fancier neighborhood would be better for his client base and pull them ahead financially in the long run. The new owners would arrive the next day and inherit all that ever happened between these walls. They would make her garden theirs. They would kick the base heater on the win in the winter so it would work, and they would sit enjoy in enjoying the evening sun from the park across the street. The box, a vestige from her parents' wedding, was elegant and promised to hold something worthy. It was big enough for a serving tray or a silverware chest, but it no longer held a gift. It was filled with precious objects, important sentimental items, and loads of random paper from Willow's youth. Before here, it had lived in the bottom of her antique green dresser drawer in her childhood bedroom. The box had come back into Willow's possession when her mother had come to their housewarming party. She arrived at the front door with the long blue rectangle tied with a new satin bow. In truth, her mother seemed happier for the opportunity to clear out any remnants left by her now adult child who'd come into storage space of her own than she did about the couple's excitement for buying their first house. She'd also brought with her two decrepit-looking cardboard boxes filled with odds and sods like old dog dolls and skates that had been rotting in her basement for decades. That housewarming had been the last straw for Jean Patterson and her son-in-law, Matt, and he still told the story. She made me fetch the boxes out of her trunk in the rain in the middle of the party, he always ended with. They were full of crap, and she didn't even bring any wine. <laughs> Jean had managed to patch up their disagreement a year later by giving Matt an old Rolex which had belonged to Willow's late father. That gift said a lot about both of them, but Willow had ignored the signs. Even though Matt would be back from a run to the dump any minute, Willow took the opportunity to have the look through the contents of the box. She sat down on the bed, removed the dusty blue lin ta lid taped on one corner to keep its shape. She was sad. She wanted to dive deep into nostalgia to rub her melancholy raw. She found the perfect thing when peeking out from underneath an ancient yellowed hydro bill stamped overdue, she saw a small cheery note with a big heart smiling up at her. Every year of her childhood until she was 23, Willow and her brother had received a Valentine's Day card in the mail. There was always a $5 bill tucked inside. The cards were remarkable, mostly in their cavalier silliness, like two peanuts embracing under the words, I'm nuts about you. Willow liked to imagine her grandmother going to the drugstore and buying the box of Valentines. 
They were the kind usually bought for young classmates. She'd probably hidden it away in her gnarled wooden desk. One box and only three grandchildren may have lasted her for years. The cards were addressed in the telltale, large, loopy handwriting of her gran, but they were always signed mysteriously. Guess who? <laughs> On the occasion in life where Willow had not received a valentine from a boy or an admirer, her gran's valentines had made her feel loved. She always thought she might be her gran's favorite grandchild, and she hoped so anyway, because she was not the favorite in her family. <laughs> there had been one card that was different, and that was the last one. It arrived at Willow's apartment, where she lived during university, just before she'd flunked out. The card had been a buoy of love in a sea of self-loathing. The different Valentine had small, neat cursive writing with an elegant forward slant, and there was no mistaking her grandfather had addressed the envelope. Her grandmother had fallen ill that year and obviously recruited her doting husband to send that card. The card, Willow remembered, had the requisite $5 bill and a picture of a cute little brown bear swinging in a crescent moon with a caption that said, I'm very glad you're mine. <laughs> but it had broken her heart that it was signed from your secret admirers, G and G. Was that love? It was love from her grandparents to her, but was it romantic love between her grandfather and her grandmother? If Willow looked at it glass half full, her grandparents were strong partners that loved each other and they were a good team. And there was her grandfather dutifully carrying out his wife's last wishes. But that last Valentine signature had bothered Willow. Perhaps her grandfather, after all those years together, didn't quite understand the nuances of her grandmother's fun and magic. And maybe that's why this move was cracking Willow right through her core. Maybe her own husband, unaffected by the loss of their community, wanting to strive, succeed, forge ahead, didn't quite get her. He didn't understand how much this house and this place meant to her, nor what she meant to it. She wasn't sure they would survive this, and she was right. Averill Groenveld Meher grew up in the Netherlands, with summers in New Brunswick and New York. She moved to Vancouver to attend UBC, where she got a BA in Human Geography to figure out where she is, and an MA in Historical Geography to clarify when. The Writer's Studio helped her with the why, and the grad program with the how. She's not sure what comes next. This story is called Jetlag. June watched the windshield wipers slap back and forth at almost frozen rain. Roger had picked her up from Heathrow in his father's car, some fancy British thing, but the windshield wipers were out of whack. They went thwack bump, thwack bump, thwack bump. She was reeling from the long flight and having trouble adjusting to English traffic. Panic jolted her body every time a car rushed toward them and skimmed by on the right. She tried to focus on the scenery, and with every thwack on the windshield, caught another glimpse of the brown, bland slopes of southern England. New Year's Eve was clearly not the best time to be a tourist, but she hadn't seen Roger since he moved away last summer, and, well, they had plenty to talk about. 
Hey, Raj, did I tell you about the de-icing fluid? The truck that was bringing it? It slid into a ditch on the way up from Seattle. That's why they had to close the airport. That's why I'm late. She paused a moment. The funny thing is, by the time it arrived, the snow had melted anyway. Hmm, glub glub. Go round the pub, said Roger. June assumed he was concentrating on the road, but she couldn't quite catch his accent. It seemed heavier than she remembered. Anyway, the pub for dinner would be nice, she decided, picturing cheery locals propped against a dark wooden bar. They drove on to his parent holiday cottage in Devon, a recent purchase slated for major renovation in the spring. Out the window, on the wrong side of the car, she tried to find them, Bracken, Moors, Crofts, those literary landscapes with their endless scope for understated drama and hot tea. She spotted a few bushes by the side of the road. Heather, she guessed, wet, dead Heather. You should have seen it, June said, the snow? It was like a meter high. On the roof of the shed? I thought it might collapse. Roger pushed his hair off his forehead. He drove them along winding roads through hedgerows and gray villages. Thwack bump, thwack bump, thwack bump. Roger always drove when they were together. Finally, they parked outside the cottage, a low building of whitewashed stone with a droopy thatched roof. Roger mumbled something about 18th century architecture, architecture as they walked through the picket gate into a small pebbled yard. Rain dripped from the thatch while he struggled with a brass key and antique lock. June crowded up against the back of his wet raincoat. Raj, honey, what do you think? Is this doorstep possibly the coldest place in England? Roger merely swore, trying to open the door. June quietly placed her hand on his and tilted the key in just the right angle to spring the lock, letting them into the entry hall, out of the rain, but not the cold. Roger set his suitcase down and drawing on that English reserve of fortitude, sometimes mistaken for good humor, he spread his arms wide and managed to wink. Actually, he said, nodding at the cramped sitting room and bedroom just beyond, it's a known fact that this right here is the coldest place in all the land. And indeed, while there was an enormous stone fireplace at one end of the sitting room, the cottage was far too quaint for central heating, and the electric baseboards of an earlier renovation had not accounted for the way thick walls would cling to the damp of centuries past. June tossed her duffel bag onto one of the twin beds and sat on the other. Roger placed his suitcase beside her, rummaged around, and presented her with a Christmas gift from his mom, an Irish sweater of pale cream wool. June traced its intricate pattern. She pulled it on over her traveling clothes and smiled up at Roger. It's like lace, she said, delicate ivory lace. Later, after warm pints and pies in the pub, they fumbled around in one of those narrow beds, but the rhythm was off. June got up, pulled on her sweater, and crept right into the massive fireplace to see why it wasn't drawing properly. She managed to knock the flue open, but covered her new sweater in a layer of soot. Freezing, rain, free, sorry, freezing wind rushed in and blew out her small fire. Defeated, she slipped back between musty sheets and snuggled up against Roger's back. He inched away from her scratchy sweater. She tried to warm her ice cube feet against his calves, but he flinched right to the edge of the bed. She tried to mold her hips against his, but he wiggled away from her cold thighs. Roger did not wake up as she, as she stroked his shoulder with a soot-covered hand, so she gave it just the smallest of shoves.
Roger's head hit the bed with a whack. He landed on the floor with a thump. June snuggled down into the warmest part of the mattress and pulled the covers up over her ears. Thanks. And that's a wrap. Thank you so much to all of our brave readers for sharing. (laughs) Spiel wants you to be next on our stage. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at spiel underscore Vancouver for all details about upcoming events, featured themes, and how to submit your original work. I'm Joanna Baxter. And I'm Dana Mahana. Stay tuned for new episodes of Spiel, which will feature another selection of writers from our series of live recorded events. Thanks for listening. 